Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're so glad you've decided to join us and pray that you'll be blessed by the truth of God's Word today. And now we invite you to grab your Bible, if you're able, turn to Revelation all the way in the back, right before the maps, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, good evening. We're in session 33 out of what looks like it's going to be 34 sessions altogether. So we'll go ahead and walk over chapter 21 this evening. Uh, next week, of course, is Thanksgiving. We'll have that Wednesday off, and then we'll be back for the final session the following Wednesday. So this chapter is talking about the unveiling of eternity, the what we call the eschatology, the Christian hope of the end times. But again, before we go through anything else, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your hope. We thank you for being a God who, who paid the price for our availability, Lord, that we might come to you, that we might be able to call ourselves your children, and that you look at us not as the fallible and flawed, but that you look at us and you see the image of your Son. We thank you for the grace that made that possible. Now open us, open our minds, open our hearts to better understanding what it means to stare into the scope of eternity, to see your love and your will for our lives, not just our lives in the here and now, but the hereafter as well. In the most holy name of Christ we pray, amen. All right, so I wanted to touch base a little bit on the last little bit of last session when we were talking about uh, death being thrown into the lake of fire. Well, what does that mean? What is a Christian understanding of death and how well does it fit in with a biblical narrative? Because there's a lot of crazy ideas about what happens to the soul once a person dies. There are some, and I hate to say this, many of the, the regular, uh, more orthodox churches that actually believe in soul sleep. There are several that Christian uh, groups that actually believe in reincarnation, of all things. Many who believe that just because you try to be a good person, of course you'll get into heaven, who believe that God if you will, would suspend his own righteousness to allow the unrighteous in. That somehow being a loving God means that he has to overlook rebellion and sin. The Bible does not say it. Uh, so I wanted to take a look without reading verbatim for you, uh, Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31, which is the story of Lazarus not uh, Lazarus in the sense of the, the sister of Mary and Martha, but Lazarus the beggar in relationship with the rich young ruler. Um, somebody get them the uh, copy of the notes, please. So the question is, is the story of Lazarus a parable or is it a case study? Meaning, is it something that Jesus is, is it a story, a made-up story that he's presenting just for the sake of teaching, 
us about a heavenly truth the way that other parables work? Or is he actually declaring a bit of eternal history for us? And there's a whole lot of word issues when it comes to considering what happens to the soul after the body dies. And that's in no small part because of the weirdness of the English language and the way that the Word of God has been translated over the the years. For instance, in some of your translations, you see the word Hades a lot. And in, in <laughs> I remember on TV, especially the reruns of the shows back from the 60s and 50s, people would say Hades when they didn't want to say hell, as though in polite company that was the same thing. It is not. In order to understand what that word means, you have to understand the language which it comes from. Hades was not just a Greek god. Hades was a word meaning the kingdom of the dead. If you talk about the kingdom of Hades, you talk about the realm of the deceased, not necessarily the place of torment, even though sometimes that's inferred. There's another Hebrew, almost direct equivalent, called Sheol. Descending into Sheol, even even in Sheol, your presence is there. Well, how can that be if, the, if, if hell's definition is the place where uh, there is exclusion from the presence of God? Well, you have to understand that Sheol doesn't mean the place of condemnation. It means simply the place of the dead. Now, sometimes that's inferred, but you have to read the context of, of how that's translated. You have to, because sometimes these words are left untranslated in the Bible, depending upon what version you use. In Greek, in the New Testament, the word for the place of torment is Tartarus. The only time that 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 is used is from the Apostle Peter's pen, when he uses the verb form, Tartaro, meaning to, to throw into the place of torment. According to the outline of biblical usage, this is the subterranean region. Again, we're talking Greek theology that your Greek mythology that became part of their language. The subterranean region, doubtful and dark, regarded by the ancient Greeks as the abode of the wicked dead. This is their version of the abuso, the bottomless pit, where they suffer punishment for their evil deeds. It answers to or is the equivalent of the word Gehenna in Hebrew, the valley that Jesus actually points to in the New Testament outside of Jerusalem of burning trash. And that is used by many rabbis, not just Jesus, but many rabbis as symbolic of the place of the condemned. Back when people around Jerusalem used to worship Moloch, they would cast the remnants of those human sacrifices while they were still burning into the valley of Gehenna. And that's how it got that reputation. That's how it got that uh, that connotation, if you will. Next is the word that we hear Jesus use from the cross. This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Literally, and I don't know if you've ever heard of this, (laughs) the word from the Greek that becomes paradise in English means a grand enclosure or preserve. Paradise literally means a park. In other words, but to translate it into... uh, to theology, it's a place set aside by God for rest. 
According to outline of biblical usage, this is the part of the realm of the dead, Hades, which was thought by later Jews to be the abode of the souls of the pious until the resurrection. But some understand this to be a heavenly paradise. So this is the place of the honored dead. This is the place where the righteous soul goes once they depart this life. Paradisios, paradise. Abraham's bosom is another term that we hear get thrown around a lot. Uh, when in the case of what we're just talking about, the case of the story of Lazarus, when Jesus describes the setting between the rich fool and Lazarus, he says that Lazarus is in the midst of Abraham's bosom. When you are sitting around a table in the ancient Jewish context, a table which is basically a, a wooden pallet about that high that's sitting on the floor, and you recline to dine, basically you, you lay down, you prop your head up with one arm, and you feed yourself with the other hand, but you're laying down. Rome is where we get this idea of sitting at a table. In the Near East, particularly in Israel, you lay down in front of one. When you're laying down next to the head of the table, you are literally next to that person's chest. You are in the place of blessing, a.k.a. Abraham's bosom. But in theological terms, when we're talking about this from the text of the rabbis, to be in Abraham's bosom, thus meant to enjoy happiness and rest at the banquet in paradise. In other words, at the table of the Lord. So when we talk about the realm of the dead, when we talk about what happens to the soul in the Bible, once someone has departed this life, you have basically Sheol, the kingdom of the dead. You have a place of blessing on one side. As Jesus describes it, you have an impassable gulf in the middle. And then you have a place where those who will be later condemned are already experiencing their punishment. There's another phrase that we hear about here in Revelation. The abuso, the abyss, which literally means a bottomless pit. According to Thayer's Greek lexicon, this is the same place as the lake of fire that we're going to hear about in chapter 20, or that we did hear about in the last session. So, uh, and I'll throw this last one out for free. When we talk about heaven, oranos, what do we actually mean? In some of your cases, you'll hear in the, in the writings of Paul that he ascended into the third heaven and was actually taught by Jesus himself. Well, what in the world do you mean by third heaven? I thought there was only one. Well, to the Hebrew mindset, heaven simply means sky. When you talk about the first heaven, that's actually what you are really talking about, the place of the birds, the clouds, the place where storms gather, and so on the visible sky, the blue above us. The second heaven, conceptually speaking, they think of as the universe, the place of the stars, space, the place of the planets, the moon, and so forth. Then when Paul says, I was called up into the third heaven, whether in the spirit or not, I do not know, or in the body or not, I do not know, he's talking about literally being carted up into the presence of God next to the throne room of God. Again, back to the outline of biblical use. Heaven, that third heaven that we talk about, is the region above the sidereal heavens, the seat of order of things and eternal and 
consummately perfect where God dwells and other heavenly beings. So, the way the Bible depicts it, there's a difference between the place where the throne room of God is and the place where the honored dead is. Is there a connectivity between the two? I would assume so. Are they directly the same place? Biblical literature places doubt in that. But there is a place where the departed souls are gathered. Um, this is the section from our last look at Revelation that I'm touching on now, trying to explain all this to you. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death and death and Hades, the place of the dead, gave up the dead that were within them. Each one was judged according to their works. Now, this is the part that was confusing, apparently, in the last session. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, the buso. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So, by this point in the book of Revelation, the place of blessing where the honored dead had been gathered has already been emptied out. The resurrection, the Bema Seat judgment has already taken place. And what we're reading about right here is that the place of judgment, that's also a part of the kingdom of the dead, if you want to call it that, is being emptied by their resurrection for the great white throne judgment. So mortality is over. Death is been abolished. The justified will continue to live eternally in the presence of God. The condemned, on the other hand, the second death, they will be eternally exiled from the presence of God. This is where the lake of fire comes in. And the places of dead itself, Sheol, Hades, however you want to think about it, will pass away because they will no longer have a function. We don't die. We'll talk about that in chapter 21 when we get there. But the places of the dead have passed on. So effectively, it gets chucked into the lake of fire along with the devil and the condemned. At least that's the way that John is describing what he's seeing here. So, we're moving into chapter 21, the unveiling of eternity, the descending of the new Jerusalem. I want to cover this really quickly. This is how Peter describes what John is about ready to pin down from the witness of his own pen. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The very elements will burn. Basically, physics itself will be torn asunder and be dissolved. And the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. The judgment will come. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire. Note that phrase. The heavens, the skies, the universe itself will be dissolved. The original last verse of Amazing Grace actually picked up on this. When it was written down, the earth will soon dissolve like snow. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. 
But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth, a new reality itself where righteousness dwells. Now, Revelation chapter 21, the unveiling of eternity. When you get there in your own copy of the Bible, say amen. All right. John writes for us, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and even the sea was no more. All of physics, all of what we call reality, and even the way that super realities, the supernatural was structured at that point in time, all of it is gone and remade, reforged into something new, something actually better. What is better than heaven? I have no idea, but apparently this is. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. I want you to note in your notes, this is the first time that John actually uses the title, the name Jerusalem. All through the rest of the book of Revelation, he, re he alludes to it as that great city. And in one case, he even refers to it as Sodom and Gomorrah, or Sodom and Egypt, rather, excuse me. But this is the first time in this new redeemed state, in this new re redeemed, uh, recreated state, this is the first time that he actually uses the word Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Underline this, verse 4. Death will be what? No more. Mortality is gone. All the conditions that go with the curse of Adam are gone. No more grief, no more crying, no more pain. Because the previous things, the old things, have passed away. So, but the natural and the supernatural have been remade. They've been cast aside in favor of something newer, something better, something with a new harmony between the two. Both are going to be fixed, uh, joined together at a fixed point, which will apparently be the city of this new Jerusalem, where the supernatural and the natural come into contact. God will be in direct contact also with humanity. And we'll see that there's, there's this, a very big significance of what that means. The curse of Adam is lifted, disease, toil, death, the whole thing is gone away. Verse 5, Then the one seated on the throne, God himself said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, He's talking to John. Present tense John. Not future John. He's talking to John as he's taking note of these visions he's receiving. Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers or the one who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. This is a promise 
that God is making through the pen of John for the people of John's present and those who will read the book of Revelation after it. This is God talking to you. The one who conquers. And this is also very much in the same format as Revelation chapter 2 and 3 where he's where Jesus is dictating letters to the seven churches, to the overcomer, I will provide this blessing. So God is basically saying to the conqueror, to the overcoming, meaning all of us, if we're able to get through in the same kind of way that the people in, uh, in the chapters 2 and 3 overcame from the seven churches, we will be inheritors of the kingdom that John is seeing in his vision. I will be his God, and he will be my son. But, he's alluding to the people that are being cast out, or that have been, in John's vision, cast out. The cowards, in other words, those who did not have faith in God's faithfulness. Fear is a mild form of atheism. The cowards, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all liars. In other words, everything that would that would signify in your life that you do not have possession of the Holy Spirit, that you are not in the redeemed. Their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So it, we hear the voice of God itself kind of restating and interpreting for us John's vision. We get a new promise to the overcomer that they will inherit, that they will be an heir of the kingdom of heaven, a prince or princess, as it was understood in that time of the kingdom of heaven, and that the unrepentant will stand condemned. And I reference for you uh, John chapter 3, when Jesus himself talks about the regeneration process and what it means to accept the Son of God and then to not accept the Son of God, in which case he says for those who reject the Son of God, they stand condemned already. Verse 9, one of the seven angels, the same one who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, the bowls of wrath, came and spake with me, come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Then he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I want you to notice this. This new Jerusalem, the first three Jerusalems, if you will, were made by human hands. This one is made where? By God in His own kingdom. Nothing that men put together, nothing that humanity touched, this is prepared by God Himself. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there you may also be. This is the, this is the, the, the bridal suite, if you will. But I want you to remember the, the Holy Spirit does deal in, in he's, he's, he's a, hmm, how to say this? There are puns at play here. The place where Jerusalem now stands used to be the Canaanite city of Salem. In fact, Jerusalem literally means New Salem. Salem being akin to the word Selah, meaning pause and consider or place of peace. 
So Jerusalem, the new peace, which of course has yet to occur. So when you talk about the new Jerusalem, he's almost literally saying the new, new Salem or the new, new peace, the brand new peace that now exists between, in our case, between God and humanity, between creator and creation. Let's see. Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone as clear as crystal. It emanates its own light. It emanates its own light. Her radiance. She's, that's where we get the term radiation. Light is coming from this city. It's not just reflecting, and we'll see why in just a second. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the twelve tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on those gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. The city wall had twelve foundations. How does that work? I'll keep going. The city's wall had twelve foundations and the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. So, there's a lot to unpack here. We're not just getting a literal description. One of the things that I hope that you've gotten in my time with you is the definition of worship. Uh, God says that we will worship... uh, Jesus himself said, uh, when he was dealing with the Samaritan woman, that... The time is coming when you won't uh, worship either on uh, Temple Mount or on Mount Gerizim, but you will worship all over the place, but you will worship in spirit and in truth. Part of the truth of the way that worship happens is that everything that we do somehow reflects love back to God by recounting the Christ event. Think about that for a second. Every time we come into what we call a worship service, We start by entering a place like this where we form the body of Christ. We take up a collection for the sake of ministering to the poor and the needy and to providing for the work of the ministry. We sing in celebration to God. We teach from the Word of God. And on certain occasions, we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and anticipate His coming again through the waters of baptism and through the partaking of the the Lord's Supper, through Holy Communion. And then we as the disciples are sent forth into the world. So every time that we gather together for a worship service, we reflect the life of Christ. That's what it means to worship. In that somehow, some way, some shape and form, we recount or we memorialize what Jesus has done for us. So in a way, God himself is memorializing the Christ event through the coming of the church and how it came to be, how the people of God came into existence. Twelve, in terms of a prophetic number, is symbolic of having fellowship with God. Twelve tribes plus God equals Israel. Twelve apostles plus Christ equals the early church, that kind of relationship. The dwelling place of the bride of Christ, this is the addition to the Father's house that he was alluding to. Gems also are a prophetic symbol of light. In this case, 
that we're surrounded, that the city is surrounded by light, its own light. Um, again, this is a case where the physical reality is mixed in with prophetic imagery. In our case, the story of redemptive history. Each gate is guarded by an angel named for the tribes of Israel. What that kind of links to is that the tribes themselves, as the kingdom came about, was supposed to be a doorway for the Gentiles into the kingdom. How do we know this? Because they, God himself said as their mission statement that you are supposed to be a kingdom of priests. In fact, a light to the nations. In fact, at least two people in the genealogy of Christ were Gentiles. Rahab the harlot of Jericho was a Gentile. She married into the, the royal line. Ruth was a Moabitess. She was excluded from the people of God by law. Yet what the law couldn't do, grace did. And she became a Jew. She was welcomed in. Not only that, she was an ancestor of Christ himself. She was the mother of David's grandfather. So the tribes were supposed to be the doorway into the kingdom for everybody to see the difference that God made in this nation's life. The kingdom also itself being sustained and defended by God. I'll give you a case in point. Sometimes guards are positioned to function as guards and sometimes they're positioned to function as what we would call sentinels. There is a more uh, ceremonial purpose to their being there. In the case of the United States, the guards of the tomb of the unknown soldier. It is not very likely that that tomb will ever be disturbed. However, if it is, those guards nevertheless are there to make sure that nothing happens. Don't get me wrong. But their primary function there isn't necessarily to defend so much as it is to honor, as I understand it. To be representatives of the fact that the military as it currently stands is paying homage to those who gave their last full measure of devotion and yet didn't even have the benefit of letting their name be known. The purpose is to honor the fallen. The purpose of the angels here, because there's no one to guard against. They've all been cast aside. The unrighteous aren't there anymore. Their primary function is to show that God remains with His people. And again, the gates are um, the tribes being the doorway, the kingdom being sustained and defended by God Himself. Let's move on. Each wall has 12 foundations, which are named after the 12 apostles. The apostles being the foundation of the church. I say to you, you are now Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. This is also an indicator that these walls are strengthened through their work and their testimony, and I would dare to say through uh, reconstituting and studying the book of Acts through maintaining their work and their testimony. Incidentally, if you wanted to think about this, the, the width of each wall, of each boundary of the city, we're talking about a cube-shaped city. As weird as that sounds, the dimensions that we've just recorded are cube-shaped. And each wall is 1,400 miles long. So we're talking about a gargantuous place here. 
and the materials again shine with their own light and they're also transparent. We're going to read in just a second that the streets of gold you can also see through. Verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city. Now we've seen this before in the book of Ezekiel where he measures out the new heavenly temple. Its gates and its wall, the city uh, is laid out in a square. Its length and its width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at about 12,000 stadia. We already talked about that. Its length, width, and height are equal. So it's a cube. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of this wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. Now that sounds contradictory. And to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not exactly sure what that means. I've looked through all kinds of commentaries with a lot of, with a lot of conjecture. The only thing that I can find is that right now in the here and now with the... Uh, with the reality that we have to us, there are things that are hidden. But in that point in time, no matter what walls we put up for ourselves, nothing will be hidden. And nothing will ever have to be hidden again. That's the only interpretation that I find that has any real beauty to it, but I appreciate it. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. One of the first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardix, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. Those correspond incidentally with, with the gems on the breastplate of the high priest of Israel, each one representing one of the twelve tribes. Also, incidentally, uh, each one representing a piece of the Metroth, the, uh, the Jewish zodiac, if you will. The twelve gates are twelve pearls, and that's in of itself interesting. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. I would hate to meet the oyster. <laughs> it would have to. Or, or dressing coming up. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And there we get that imagery again. So again, each stone represents a tribe and a constellation. And again, we refer back to the breastplate of the high priest of Israel, where you have the, the 12 tribes literally being housed on his chest and on his shoulders as he carries the weight of the 12 tribes before God. There's also the constellations. Each of the sons of Israel have a star formation attached to them. They call it the Masriach. Um, and those are, according to the, the book of Genesis, they are created there to be a, a sign to tell the times and the, the seasons. So we're talking about redemptive history. And, uh, and something else, the only order that these gems occur in, because they don't, they don't really come together in order of the births of the, uh, the sons of, of Israel, the way it does in other places in Scripture. The only way that that kind of makes sense in order, and it's a reverse order at that, 
is if you consider the months of the year that correlate with that particular zodiac, which is strange. Anyway, the foundations are memorials. The apostles are basically being honored by them. They're built on from the history of the tribes of Israel. Basically, Israel's history is the foundation on top of which the apostles stand. The apostles, in turn, are the foundation on which we stand, and on and on and on through history. So the Old Testament had to be there before the New Testament could happen. Both are necessary. Built from the history of the tribes. So the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Here visibly you see the interrelatedness between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that before the apostles could have their ministry, they had to have the original Torah and the prophets and all of that explained to them by the Son of God, by the Christ, who is the mortar that holds it all together. Pearls are another interesting fact I wanted to, to talk to you about, particularly because they're the, the, the gates. Pearls are not kosher. They are considered very much to be unclean by Israel because they come from shellfish. They come from a filter feeder, which is not kosher. But what's really interesting is the story behind how a pearl comes to be, its prophetic significance. Every pearl begins as an irritant, a piece of sand, a grain of sand, flies that's too big to go through the filter, flies into an oyster, it gets stuck the oyster gets irritated by it and it starts secreting something, bathing it in what we would call mother of pearl. And then it gets molded into a shape that the oyster can tolerate. Then people come along and remove it from the place of its construction and it becomes an item of adornment. Let me repeat that to you. It starts out as an irritant. It's then bathed and molded and shaped. It's removed out of the place where it had sunk. And it's taken and it's lifted up to become an item of adornment. Does that remind you of anything? It's a symbol of the, the salvation of the Gentiles. Which, it, which is why from a pathetic point of view it makes sense that that's what goes around the gates that never close. Gates here in this one instance are built to allow the outsider to enter. And they never close according to the scriptures because the unrighteous have already been judged. Verse 22. I did not see a, temp a temple in it, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. They are present here. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it because why? The glory of God illuminates it. The presence, the Shekinah of God Himself is providing light for it. Not only that, but if the sun and the moon aren't there anymore, where's the light for the planet coming from? It's coming from the city. It's the only place that it can come from that's left. The nations, in fact, right here, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. 
Its gates will never close by day because it, there will never be light night there. Excuse me. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. One of the things that we can glean from that is that political structures on the earth have been restored. In what capacity, I have no idea. But the peoples of the world, is probably an easier translation, probably a better one too. The peoples of the world will come to Jerusalem and they will worship God there. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. So, there's no sanctuary, no hidden place, no place of refuge. Why? Because there's no danger. God Himself is there, present. It's not needed. The Shekinah glory itself provides light not only to the city, but it floods out of the city and entire the, uh, throughout the world. The nations walk by it. The nations are remade. The peoples, ethnos, peoples, are remade and glorify God, and darkness is no more. That in itself is a prophetic image, meaning that unrighteousness itself is no more. Go ahead. Shoot. An excellent question. The question is, then why are there walls in the first place? The only thing that I can figure is that the walls around the city are there to provide this kind of memorial significance, to be a representative of this fact that the apostles, that Christ, that the work of God throughout the Old and New Testaments are now visible throughout all the world. But I'll dig into that a little bit further. Well, I, I just, that was, it was that, why are there gates, why are there walls? Gates are never closed, right? Because there is never night, and if the gates are open in this day and time, the gates are opened of day and closed of a night, right? So if you have no night, the gates are always open. the The comment uh, is, <clears throat> since there is no night, the gates are always open. Because the way that things work right now, anyway, is that the, if we were in ancient Israel, it's only by nightfall that the gates would close to prevent attacks and so forth. Verse 25. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. That's King James. Yeah. But, well, I just, because I, I think it becomes, to me, all of a sudden it became sort of. Gates and walls uh, are uh, defensive to keep somebody out. Right. And uh, but I, as I hear it, this is there's nobody. The last slide, there's nobody left but the righteous. Right. So, so you know, the, the world as we now know it is God and all the right is. Yeah, so, so why would there be walls and gates and angel guards all in the first place if there's nobody to guard against? Um, and the, the only truth that I can find really that's, that I think is satisfactory um, is that the very construction of the city itself 
is more of a symbolic uh, truth that every generation from that point on can look to and remember. Um, we're told in a couple of chapters past that even during the, the, reign, the millennial kingdom, they worshiped the feast, at the, that all the peoples of the world worshiped the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, why on earth would you worship at the Feast of Tabernacles if Jesus is right there in front of you? To remember. Right. I mean, I, I just, it, it just kind of, that was things for me. Oh, it's, it's had many people scratching their heads. I mean, it's, it's almost to me, it's like, uh, and I don't, I don't think it looks like the city of Jerusalem. It doesn't say it was a replacement of the exact, you know, it's, it's, it's a new, right. it's a new Jerusalem. Oh no, the city, the, if you take a look at, and I'll do this for, for next time, I'll come up with a comparison of what Jerusalem in John's day looks like versus what this is describing. I should have actually done that for tonight, and I thought that with all the stuff that I've already covered, I was over time. Apparently, I, I, mis, <laughs> I underestimated. I almost went into a, a George Bushism there, misunderestimation. Anyway, uh, for next time, read over chapter 22. We are drawing to our conclusion for this study. And I would like for you to take out your journals. And I'd like for you to, to just kind of peruse them really quickly and ask, are there any questions, especially for those of you watching this from home, are there any questions through this study that from the beginning until now has not been satisfactorily answered or that, that still kind of raise uh, our head scratchers, I'll put it that way. Ones that can be explained because there are still many facets of Revelation yet to explore. We've taken 34 weeks to get through this one book of the Bible and we've only scratched the surface for what it really holds. But I want you to think about those questions and think about what, uh, what remains either unanswered or, or obscure, excuse me. Journal them down, just list them really briefly. We'll see if we can get through them. Uh, chapter 22 is not a large chapter, so we'll be able to devote quite a bit of time to seeing, to exploring those questions together. I might have to pull out a stool or something to sit down through them. Um, Remember to discuss those in your groups. And is there anything else before we dismiss? If not, about a new heaven and a new earth, could it possibly be that the heaven is referenced not to? place of God, but the atmosphere, since we have a new earth, then we must have also a new atmosphere. If it, if it weren't for what Peter himself writes, I would say yes, because to me that would make more sense. Um, what um, Elbert is asking is, 
when he says new heavens and the new earth, given the meaning of heaven, is John really talking about the supernatural and the natural or just the earth, the planet, and the universe surrounding it? That's an excellent question. Let me dig into that a bit more, but most of what I've come across basically says that in order for this to happen the way it's happening, especially if you've got like the place of the afterlife getting chucked out of existence, um, is that the supernatural itself needs to be remade so that it and the natural can now come together in harmony. But I'll, I'll double check in on that. But that's my interpretation. And again, Acts 17.11, I could be bizarrely wrong. Do your own homework. All right. Anything else? If not, Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for being a God who honors your promises, who delights in the making and keeping of promises to your children. Lord, we claim the promise of blessing that this book gives us. We claim the hope that we have that through your Son, we will see these events come to pass. We will walk on the streets of gold and we will finally see Him face to face. And we can finally experience your light in its fullness. So help us to take heed from your words, to take hope from these pages and to continue to develop an awe and amazement of the links that you went to to give us your word and the hope contained therein. So be with us now as we dedicate this time and ourselves into your hands without any reservation. Help us to know you better and to know the work ahead that we might perform, that we might be the hands and feet of Christ that you've called us to be. In the most holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person, to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.